I'm delighted this afternoon to be joined by Rafi Faber of the Endgame Investor. Uh, Rafi is one of the commentators on um, monetary policy, banking, and economics uh, that that, that uh, I follow and get lots of useful information from. Uh, it's a it's a pleasure to be able to talk to you today. Welcome, Rafi. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I hope to be on more than once. I like you guys. <laughs> <laughs> well. This is exactly what we hope for. We're going to be doing a lot more coverage of matters economic in the uh, strange world in which we find ourselves. Um, I'd like to start off, uh, Rafi, you, your, um, your uh, business advice and um, uh, programme is called The Endgame Investor, right? which is a very yeah. interesting title. Uh, could you describe to us what you see the end game as being? Uh, well... Okay, there's a lot of different ways to answer this question. I'll try to make it less apocalyptic and more encouraging and uh, positive, which is which is how I see the world. Um, okay. You know, I I, I tell people that uh, it, I seem to be a pessimist, but I really am an optimist. I have a positive view of the world. So uh, the the end game is really the end game of of what we would call fiat currencies. Right? Everyone's familiar with that term. Um, it is what Mises called the crack-up boom. And we've seen that scenario play out in every civilization, almost every civilization that has existed that has been monetary-based. At some point or other, their currency dies and their civilization falls apart. Uh, we saw the Roman Empire in more recent times. We've seen it, of course. Um, and so we saw it in Hungary and Czechoslovakia. That's what's going to happen now to the dollar the difference is with the dollar is that the dollar is the backing to every other fiat currency whereas in, an, in a localized end game or a crack up boom or hyperinflation it's all the same term uh that then that country pretty much reverts to uh either you know it can revert to gold but uh, or silver directly but usually they revert to some other functioning currency usually the U.S. dollar or some other local currency that still works or still retains some value. That will be impossible this time because what we're talking about, how you could, I guess, differentiate end game from hyperinflation is hyperinflation can be in any currency, whether it's Zimbabwe or you know some third world country somewhere that doesn't really affect the whole world. But the end game is really the end game of all fiat currencies because it is the reserve currency of all other currencies that will be hyperinflating. So when there is hyperinflation of the dollar itself, that is an end game in the sense that nobody will be able to revert to any other currency in order to retain value uh, or to retain purchasing power to participate in the division of labor, which is what you need a stable monetary unit for. So then what will happen? It's not going to be the end of the world. It is going to be uh, people reverting in the immediate aftermath of the end game to physical gold and silver that they will have to hold in their hand and actually give to somebody in exchange for goods and services. Uh, and how long will that stage of it last? Not that long because we have technology that will institute money substitutes as we have them now, except they will just be more honest and functional. Uh, so in the immediate aftermath of the end game, you're going to want to have physical gold and silver coins that you can actually access. Uh, and at that point, you're going to want to amass wealth with them 
which is good for people who have gold and silver, but it is also very, very good for people who don't, because otherwise, without a stable monetary unit for them, they won't be able to participate in the division of labor, and therefore these specialized skills that they've been able to amass in this incredibly globalized economy will be for naught if they can't have a, a unit of account with which to trade it. So by buying things with gold and silver at the end game when the dollar no longer has an exchange value with a gold ounce or a silver ounce and those definitions no longer hold, then you want to buy things with actual money and that will be the end game. And it will be a humongous uh, transfer of wealth from people with fiat to people with gold and silver, which will be very good for the world because the stackers of actual gold and silver, they know basically what's going on. And I want the power to uh, rebuild society resting mostly with them, which means you <laughs> and me. Yes, and, and we've discussed this on the call. Before we get to the power and the nature of money, and I'd like to come to that in, in some detail. You mentioned the crack-up boom, and, and just you know, for, for our listeners who might not be familiar with this, this is not just an economic phenomenon, but it's also a psychological phenomenon. Could you just explain uh, what the crack-up boom is? Uh, okay, so we can explain this psychologically, but I have recently come across a better explanation of what it is from, Dan from Daniel Oliver of Mermican Capital who, uh, if you haven't interviewed him, I would, I would highly recommend talking to this man because he really knows his monetary stuff even better than I do. Um, so psychologically, we could, we could say it is the moment when the public realizes that it's not that goods and services are getting more expensive, it's that their monetary unit is dying and they therefore change their uh, desire to hold cash balances to zero. What gives a money substitute any value is the desire not to spend it, right? the desire to hold it as uh, savings for future goods and services. If that value, if that, if that estimation uh, falls to zero, then, then everyone spends everything they have as soon as possible, and the desire to hold cash balances falls to zero, and the currency is therefore worthless. We can describe that another way. When the exchange rate between gold and the dollar or silver and the dollar goes to infinity, that happens in every hyperinflationary economy, in every endgame scenario, um, in every crack up boom. These are all the same terms. And to go to a, a more, let's say, scientific, I don't even want to use that term because scientific is a bad term now. You know, <laughs> we all know what I'm talking about. But in a more, I'd say, Austrian economics approach to um, when the crack up boom happens. Um, and I'll try to make this quick, but it is a little bit technical. Uh, every dollar brought, brought into existence, almost every dollar brought into existence is brought into existence through the purchase of debt, the purchase of usually a treasury, the U.S. treasury or a mortgage-backed security, some kind of debt. And so the dollar is backed by that debt. Now, when, when that, as long as that debt still has value, meaning people are paying it back, there is a demand for dollars to pay that debt. Uh, when that debt defaults, then the, the, the assets held by the central bank itself, when those default, then the dollar, which is the other side of the assets of the Federal Reserve System, when the assets backing that dollar default, then the dollar's purchasing value, value has to plummet very quickly. And what's left on the Fed's balance sheet is some gold, maybe. Let's assume it's there. So the crack-up boom is the moment when the assets of the Federal Reserve balance sheet uh, plummet very quickly, and there goes the purchasing power of the dollar, 
And that is the same moment we see it on the other side, on the, the front end, let's say, that's the back end. The back end is the Fed balance sheet. The front end is what you see in the, on the streets. And that is people just dumping currency for anything they can get. Uh, and you're just left with a whole bunch of money and no goods and services to buy. This is uh, from the from the man in the streets point of view. It's the it's the process where they go from having, you know, gosh, I, I need a new I need a new um, frying pan that's quite expensive. To I need a new frying pan. Prices are going up, but they're always going to go up, so I'll buy it now. To I might need a new frying pan shortly, and prices are going up so fast, I'll buy it now. To the point, and the crack up boom comes when you reach the point that well, I don't want this currency stuff. I'll buy a frying pan that I don't need because at least I'll be able to trade that for something else later on. I'd rather have that than the money. And that's that's the crack up boom point from the public's point of view when it's when it becomes it, it's the, when the desire to hold it, as you say, goes to zero, goes to goes to nothing at all. Um, exactly. Right. So. You 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 took us in you took us into areas of 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 debt and the dollar, and this this is the you know the key the key point that you're making is it's different this time because it's global. We have a globalized society, we have a globalized economy. It's all based on the dollar. The dollar um, is is the vastly dominant reserve currency of the world, and it's in serious trouble. Um, I, I'd like to explore with you just how serious that trouble is. Um, we've, we've reported on um, the, the, the nature of the banking conundrum that the Fed finds itself in because it's now having to increase interest rates to quash inflation, but this is based on an economy that's a giant bubble or an assembly of bubbles based on zero interest rate policy, based on free money. So they're going to break something um, and they have to both increase interest rates to quell inflation and be ready to uh, go back to zero interest rates and quantitative easing to save whichever asset class they they, they find themselves destroying. They find that they're in this... Um, a position where they ha they're having to thread a needle. Maybe that's not quite the right metaphor. Um, to they're having to they're having to walk a very narrow plank between precipices on either side. And they assure us that they're the feds. They're wise. They're knowledgeable. They're men of the world with enormous financial experience and 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 contacts throughout the industry. And they can do this. And we should be reassured. But when we look at their predictions, um, we find that they're always wrong. They, they were telling us that inflation was transitory. They were telling us that there was nothing to worry about, that it was only short-term supply difficulties. They told us that they could close the entire world economy down for a year and a half and just print money to compensate, and it would be fine. So our confidence in them is perhaps not what it might be. Uh, so could, could you expand a little bit on just what the problem with the dollar actually is? <laughs> what the problem with the dollar actually is ah well the problem with the dollar <laughs> the problem with the dollar is that it is inflated it is it, it is inflated there are more claims on goods and services than exist than goods and services exist on the planet this is in every currency 
right? If you if you if you count up all of the assets and all of the, you know, what whatever in people's checking accounts and people's brokerages accounts and all the assets that they own, whether it's real estate or land or whatever, that if you count up all of those dollars and all the derivatives, you have something like what what these numbers that are quoted are like 1.5 to 2 quadrillion dollars but how many dollars actually exist in the world and it depends how you count that i mean the monetary base is something like 5.7 trillion if you take the, the the monetary base of the fed and you add all the all the money that's been backed up since the the covid printing uh so 5 trillion 1 quadrillion so that means if everyone cashed in all of his assets for money today at the same time you know most people would get, you know, would lose about 90, what's the ratio of, of 5 trillion to 1.5 quadrillion, whatever. It's, it's very, very, it's a bad situation. So most of the dollar value or any of the currency value that supposedly exists on people's balance sheets, people's personal balance sheets, isn't really there. And just like in any bank run where people get this thought that they've got to get their money out now and then the bank fails, we're just talking about a global bank run. We're talking about people have all these assets denominated in dollars that they think that this this total value exists because they see it on their printed out sheets of this is how much your your net worth is this year, Mister Whoever you are. Uh, and uh, that if there's a global bank run, which will be a bank run on the dollar, then these people are going to lose most of the value that they thought was there, except for people who own. Gold and silver. And why specifically gold and silver? Because when there's a bank run, the original bank runs are when people take their paper receipts for the dollars that they thought represented gold and they give it to the bank and they say, give me my money. Dollars weren't money. They still aren't money. They're just referred to as money. They are money substitutes. They are substitutes for gold and there is no such thing as a fiat currency. Everyone has dollar claims on a certain amount of gold that is the wrong amount um, that eventually will fall to zero. And there are people with real money that will have the real claims on these assets, on these assets, any real assets that are left in the world after this uh, end game. And they will be able to claim much of that wealth. And uh, that's what we want. That's what we're waiting for. That's the problem with the dollar. It's a big Ponzi scheme. In the UK terms, back in 1914 and up until 1914, in fact, from, from 1817 until 1914, you could take a pound into a bank and say, I want the underlying gold backing, and you would walk out with a sovereign, gold sovereign, but a quarter ounce of, uh, of, of gold of a, of a certain purity. And that was, that was 100 years on that standard. Um, as a as a quick point, if you were to buy a sovereign now, it would cost four hundred pounds. So that gives an idea of how much the value of the paper has diminished. The value of the pound note has diminished since we came off that standard. Now, when the decision was taken by the British cabinet to go into the First World War, a decision that was in the balance up until the actual meeting, no one knew how that was that decision was going to come down. There was an immediate run on the banks because there was four times as many pound notes in circulation as there was gold sovereigns. Not 200 to one, which you've described, but four to one, but still still fractional reserves. And the gold started to flow out. And of course, the British government stopped this, ended convertibility into gold, essentially defaulting, and, um, and so that they would have the gold to fight the, fight the war. But they started issuing paper notes to say, well, you know, we'll promise that we'll put you back on the gold standard after the war and 
it will all be fine and you will get your gold eventually. Uh, which, of course, never happened because governments lie. Um, and it, it, it illustrates this, the, the in the crisis point, the reason I make this, in the crisis point, there is a rush to real assets, the real money, gold and silver. And one of the things I've, I've discussed this with people, you, you're um, uh, speaking, I know you, you speak on um, biblical economics as well, which, which we'll come to. Um, and I, I, I'm assuming you do this from a Jewish perspective. And I've spoken to people uh, from uh, this, uh, the Islamic world who talk about gold and silver as money with integrity. And we've got uh, Christian authors like Gary North um, talking about the, the key to Christian economics is thou shalt not steal. And who view uh, the 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 generation of of inflated paper currency as simply a means of theft? So having some basic principles or, on the honesty and integrity of the money supply is obviously quite key to this as well. Um, where I'd like to go next is you you said that the dollar is a giant Ponzi scheme. Um, I'd like you to explore a little bit of the position that the Federal Reserve and central banks in general find themselves in um, as they try to manage this Ponzi scheme. Because, of course, the one thing about a Ponzi scheme you can't do is you can't tell the truth about a Ponzi scheme. Right? You have to lie because it's based on yeah. lies. It's based on public perception. So they must maintain the public perception. If the confidence goes, they, they fail. If the confidence goes, it all goes. So they're in this, this unique position where they're dealing with real markets, real market forces. Uh, they're dealing with um, your actual prices with people who are trying to maximise their own, their own position all the time. And yet they're having to maintain simultaneously um, the confidence of in essentially the whole planet as they do this. It strikes... It strikes me as the job I would least want in the entire world. Um, do you have any sympathy for them? Do I have sympathy for them? Sure. I mean, I don't know. I mean, we, we have been so stuck and mired in this Keynesian system. Um, and lots of people on, on this Federal Reserve were probably, you know, very uppity, um, you know, late teenagers, early 20s, and they wanted to change the world for good and, you know, assume they were good people when they started out. And then they were just mesmerized with a bunch of econometric voodoo and numbers and this promise that they can control the entire planet monetary system just by running everything through an equation. Um, that it's, it's a very uh, heady um drugging experience when you think that you have that kind of power. So I don't know these people personally. I can't condemn them personally, but I can say that when you're when you have a taste of power, you're going to do everything you can to preserve it. Um, you know, people who I don't have sympathy for, for example, are like, you know, Alan Greenspan, who knew what he was doing. Uh, and but but Jay Powell and these people that are in charge. I don't think, do they really understand that they are stealing from people? Do they really get it? I don't think they do, but that doesn't change the fact that that's what they're doing. So it's up to us to protect ourselves from people who know not what they do. They're in a position now 
where and you could talk about maintaining psychological uh, maintaining uh, confidence in the system. Yes, they are trying to do that, but it, but we're talking about the front end and the back end again. The psychology and the confidence in the system goes hand in hand with the nature of with the the situation on their balance sheet, which is right now all central banks, all of them, all the major ones are losing money. Uh, they are paying more in interest than they have than the assets on their balance sheet are earning them. So if they're paying out more than they are earning, then what happens then? They have how do they pay out more money than they actually earn? The answer is they have to invent the difference out of nothing. And when we talk about unbacked dollars, dollars backed by nothing, that isn't true. Most dollars, almost all dollars, are backed by the debt that was bought by the central banks when they are handing that money, that purchasing power, to the government to go bomb Ukraine or whatever, whatever they do. Uh, but now that they are losing money, they are in a situation where they have to make up the difference by just printing units of liability, printing dollars, printing euros, printing yen, whatever, in exchange for absolutely nothing. So for the first time, I think this began in September, for the first time, the Fed and other central banks, because of the interest rates hike that, hikes that they have done, are printing into existence completely unbacked dollars in exchange for no assets at all. And as this intensifies, uh, the purchasing power of the dollar is going to fall and they're going to lose even more money because they're going to have to raise interest rates in order to combat inflation, what we call inflation, but what really is just rising prices. Uh, and it's going to, it, it, we're on the verge of a major positive feedback loop that there will be no escape from. Uh, either the deflation of, either the deflation of the bubble or the hyperinflation of the bubble is the same thing in real money terms. In real money terms, everything in gold and silver terms gets radically cheaper. Idea of central banks losing money. This is, we've been following this. It's banking, Murray Rothbard wrote a book called The Mystery of Banking, which was well named and a wonderful read. Um, banking's mystery, central banking, which Rothbard goes into in, in detail in this book, is even more mysterious. And the whole thing has the, what was the econometric voodoo? Has it has an element of the voodoo about it? Um, so we're now getting our heads around the idea that central banks are, are losing vast amounts of money. The way it works in Britain is we had quantitative easing, which was whatever it was, 875 billion pounds or something of, of quantitative easing, which was, nominally buying government debt by the Bank of England, but it, they actually used a separate vehicle. It wasn't the Bank of England who did the purchasing. They used a separate entity to do the purchasing, and they gave the money to the separate entity who bought the bonds. That separate entity stated its superior as being Her Majesty's Treasury. So the person who's ultimately on the hook for this is the Treasury. Is actually the government, it's actually the people. Uh, but the mechanics of it are really quite weird. The Bank of England lent this money to this entity, basically underwrote any profit or loss on, on the deal, and that was in turn underwritten by the Treasury. The Bank of England got the money from the commercial banks at commercial bank rates. So as the the interest rate goes up, they're paying commercial bank rates on, on all this money, but they're only receiving in the, the fixed price 
that they get from the bond, the the, the interest rate on the bond. Um, so they're borrowing long, they're borrowing short, and 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 buying long, and they don't, the two are not adding up. So someone had a go in the, I think it was the Times or the Financial Times a few weeks ago, working out what the losses were. And they, they, I think it was 188 billion pounds and counting. Um, and ultimately, the Treasury and the taxpayer is allegedly on the hook for this. But of course, they're tapped out too. Right? So it, 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 you come to the question, where does the money actually come from? And this is why collapse starts to become ever more likely, um, because everybody is being underwritten by someone else and no one seems to have any physical assets apart from the gold reserves that that uh, the fed probably hold and britain used to hold before we uh, decided that uh, given a man called gordon brown uh, authority mm -hmm. over uh, uh, the, the 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 country's gold reserves was a really clever move and gordon bless his little heart decided that gold was a what was it? What was it? The Keynes called it a barbarous relic that no one was really using gold as a as an actual asset, and decided to sell two thirds of it at the all time low price. Um, Brown's bottom, it was called. Um, so Britain's not in a very good position when this all happens. Uh, that's that's the kind of strange mechanics in Britain. Is, are there any particular wrinkles that either in the, the Federal Reserve or any other central banks you've been observing that, that are worth just highlighting at this point about the, 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 the strange nature of how central banks create money and the position they now find themselves in? Well, okay, so the first thing I'll say is that I think it is, um, it's quite fitting that a man named Brown sold all the gold. I just think that, that that fits in very nicely historically. So leave it at that. Um, the the um, <laughs> the any particular wrinkles that are interesting to observe? Oh well, I, I mean, it depends how you know wonkish you want to get. Um, what I what I would say is is I guess you could say this is interesting. Is that I looked at the monetary base. Uh, from like 1959, at least in the United States, the monetary base from 1959 to 2007, uh, just before the financial crisis, and it's pretty much stable. I mean, it went from like maybe 37 billion to like 65 billion, but this is like chump change going on, you know, compared to what's going on now. Uh, and then in 2008, it just like vertical, and uh, then it just keep going up since, and, and, you know, but from from about two, 2014 to 2019. The, the reserves in the bank system have gone way, way. They they fell a lot. I think it was like one, two trillion, two or three trillion dollars. They fell, and then all of a sudden you have the the repocalypse of 2019. The money printing did not start with the pandemic. It started with uh, it started with um, the repocalypse of 2019. When you started buying bonds again. So what resulted from that is now there's so much extra money in the system that they're backing up into something called reverse repos where it's it, 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 it's hard to explain exactly how it happens but it costs money for banks to hold cash on their balance sheet uh for regulatory reasons so they can't hold this cash so they have to give it back to the fed for some nominal interest rate the overnight rate which is now like 4.5 percent or something so the fed has to pay this rate on the reserves plus on the reverse repos from all the money that they printed they have to pay interest on that money that is now going back to them because it's too expensive for the banks to hold it. 
And that's where all their money losses are coming from. So I'm sure after the collapse and after all this is done, we're all going to like, you know, look at the ashes and examine them. We're all, we're all going to be like, you know, monetary uh, paleontologists looking at these fossils and saying, what the hell happened here? Wow, this is an interesting fossil. Um, except we'll have a lot more records. And we can go into it then and say, oh, that in retrospect, that was the most interesting part. You know, like people who study the 2008 financial collapse and try to figure out exactly how the collapse happened when you're looking at the implosion of like a stadium from a controlled explosion when they're bombing it down. Well, exactly how did it fall? Very interesting. But doesn't really matter. <laughs> I'd like to move on to sort of the more kind of uh, fundamental idea of what money is and, and, and what lends mm -hmm. its value and why gold and silver is money. Um, the... The example I had of this used to be in, in prisons that tobacco, cigarettes were money, but there's now a bit of a, a, a an anti-smoking campaign going on, and this is not always the case. And I came across a wonderful story from America about macro being money, and you thought, no, no way, can't put macro, but seriously, this was the case. So they, they had and were trading inside the jail little tins of macro, mm -hmm. and these things were these these became the most tradable good the most generally desirable good and that was the basis of the money supply inside the illicit money supply inside the jail uh, and there was even because you could you could obviously you could eat the macro as well but if if the use by date was sold out was was passed so you could no longer eat the macro it didn't reduce to zero value it there was a discount Right, and the, the the prisoners called these ones money marks, right? Because you could only use them for money; you couldn't actually eat them. And it traded at a discount of a third. It was four money marks to three marks was the was the was the trading range. And then one day there was one prisoner who was hoarding a great deal of tins of mackerel hidden in his cell, and and the wardens raided it. And they found all of this stuff and they stacked it out in the prison yard and then left it alone and took them off for questioning. So the, the market was immediately flooded with, with a vast monetary supply which had otherwise been locked up. And they had runaway inflation as a result. Right? So the whole system did work as money, even though it was based on macro. Now, we are not in a prison, exactly. And... Um, We've got more choices than macro, right? So we have the eye that the the system where gold and silver, or, or essentially anything else, because historically there've been other things, but gold and silver have emerged as the best um, assets to be used as this, become the money supply when people interact. It doesn't require a government to say we decree that this is now money, right? It's actually the reverse, that the gold and silver, the real money created by people interacting with one another started first, and then the governments came along later and put the paper on top of that, the money substitutes on top of that. So the point you were making briefly, and I'd like you to expand on, is the nature of the, the, the dispersion of power that two individual people that comes from having honest money, something like gold and silver, rather than centrally controlled, centrally operated um, fiat uh, paper, and how that moves power and authority to the individuals and away from the banks, the states, the financial institutions, and the governments. Um, 
Could you maybe expand on that? On so it's essentially the pro liberty case for gold. Well, you said you 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 noted something about governments coming in and dictating a, a value of a currency. Not only is that it, not you said it was not necessary. Not only is it not necessary, it is impossible. Impossible for any government to dictate, to dictate out of nothing the value of anything and just say, here is a currency and uh, let's call it flargs, and here is a price array. But what are they going to base that price array for all goods and services on? They're going to have to base it on the price array that already exists. Right? Mises' regression principle, or my, some people call it the regression theorem. I don't want to call it a theorem. It's a principle because it's logical. No matter any, when anybody wakes up in the morning, the only reason that they know what prices are is because they knew what it was yesterday, right? Nobody can go in and dictate what prices are in any currency. It always has to be based on the past. So every single currency is based on some other exchange value that existed yesterday and so on into the past into the beginning of human civilization. And the second thing that, that I want to, uh, to clear from people's minds is that there is no magical thing called money that is inherently different from any other good on the planet. There are different goods with different degrees of moneyness. And what makes something a money is that more people uh, want it uh, and, and more people are willing to sell it for other things, meaning it has the highest liquidity. Now, we could go into all the reasons that gold and silver have the highest liquidity of all other goods and services, but let's just assume that's, that's the case because that's, that's what is the case. So money really is just liquidity. So the most liquid will be the best money. In, in, a, in a prison, the most liquid commodity because gold and silver can't infiltrate the walls is going to be mackerel or cigarettes or whatever it happens to be. And that will be the best money for the prison. The best money for the world in a global economy is gold and silver. That's that's just what it is. And now, if you if you make if you decide that your business is going to be to store that money for other people so that they can keep it with you and you'll give them receipts, that's probably better because it's easier to pass around receipts than it is to pass around actual physical coins because physical coins that they get damaged and they they get effaced, right? And they lose some of their weight over time. Whereas paper receipts. Um, you know, they're, they're a receipt. They're a receipt for a fixed amount. So it's more liquid. It's better. The problem is when you cheat and when you make more receipts for goods and services that actually exist. That's just called stealing. So what's the case for honest money over, over stealing? Well, when you have a society that's based on theft, that allows essential power to invent things that don't actually exist and pretend that they do, that's called theft. And when you have a society that's based on theft, eventually you run out of stuff. And when you run out of stuff, you starve to death and then everybody dies. So, no, I don't think everyone's going to die. We're going to stop the theft at some certain point, and that's going to be the wake-up point. And uh, that's why, because a society that's based on theft cannot sustain itself, cannot survive, uh, and you end up with uh, eventually genocide. We're not going to get there. I hope not. I mean, we, we got dangerously close to something really crazy you know, two years ago and last year, three years ago. Um, well, I'll let you speak actually. of it. But uh, we're, we're now backing, we're now, there's going to be something going, there's going to be something bad. Um, but uh, hopefully we're through the worst of it, at least uh, in terms of certain policies. I'll just say that. And I hope the rest 
will be relatively easy, though it won't be for people who don't have money. You don't have to avoid mentioning COVID because we've already been thrown off YouTube um, because <laughs> uh, we we were uh, putting out uh, entirely accurate stories um, about people who had suffered from um, vaccine harm. And uh, mm -hmm. this uh, came to the, the attention of the authorities in Britain and uh, we were not popular as a result. Uh, but every word we said was true, and uh, we feel that's more important than being popular with the authorities. Uh, the, the the point you made on the the limitations of the state and well the inability of the state to define what anything's really worth was brought out beautifully. When I think it was Khrushchev said, um, "We want the whole world to be communist, apart from New Zealand." And when someone said, "Well, why not New Zealand?" He said, "We have to have somewhere to get the prices from." Because uh, all the Russians were doing, all the Soviets were doing, was simply copying Western prices and running their economy on the assumption that the same prices would apply. They were still using a price mechanism. It was, it was just one that was discovered in a somewhat different economy and was a, obviously less suited to their actual conditions. But they were still piggybacking on that information. The information was key and the information was developed organically by people trading and exchanging and doing so relatively voluntarily um, and you can't legislate for that you can't make that by diktat because the the information simply doesn't exist it doesn't exist in anyone's head it's the information that comes out of everybody interacting in a in a reasonably free manner um, now uh, we we said that one of your lines was um, uh, this is through your patreon page uh, we'll come to all these. We'll put all the links in the show notes to this and we'll come to uh, how to get in touch with you at, at, the end of, at the end of the interview. But on your Patreon page, you do commentaries from a biblical perspective on, um, on matters economic. Um, uh, firstly, you, you obviously come to, the, to economics from an Austrian perspective, an, or, or, uh, the, the line of Austrian economics, which is the, the ideas developed by Karl Menger, by Ludwig von Mises, by Murray Rothbard, and, and many more. Um, do you find that and the uh, information, uh, the economic information contained in the Bible, which is actually vast, do you find mm -hmm. those two compatible? Do you find any conflicts between them? Where do you find the, where do you find the similarities? Where do you find the differences? I mean, to be clear, the, the Bible is, uh, was not written in order to give us a, a theory of economics. It's not a, it's not a book on economics. Um, it's a book about civilization and people and how they interacted. And we can, we can get certain principles from those interactions. Uh, Austrian economics is, is specifically a study of interaction only. Uh, in praxeology, that sort of thing. So I, I see... Well, and also Austrian economics is value-free. The Bible is actually not value-free at all. The Bible has certain value, like don't steal. Austrian economics doesn't have that value, don't steal. The, all Austrian economics will say that is, if you steal, X, Y, Z will happen. <laughs> and isn't that interesting? Um, you know, if you want to apply, if you want to apply Austrian economics, if you want to apply values over overlaying Austrian economics, you would say libertarianism. And there are a lot of overlaps between libertarianism and the Bible. Um, there are there are also places where they don't uh, where, where they don't align. They, they don't align perfectly. Um, but there there is a. I mean, I I can just give uh, I can give two examples. 
Um, and when I, when I talk about the Bible, I talk about the, I use the, the entire Jewish tradition from, uh, from Moses until now. You know, we, we've been commenting on this book for quite a while, many thousands of years. So I take all, I take the entire tradition and there are more libertarian sources and there are less libertarian sources in the Bible. And basically you've got to pick your values and then, and, and then, you know, values come first. You can't, it, it's, it's hard to say the Bible has certain values that are hard and, and then uh, you have to take those and you, you come up with your values first and then you find them, you find certain things in stories. Um, so uh, very, very simply, just give one example uh, that in Isaiah, um, and I, this is very clear uh, at the beginning of the book of Isaiah, and he pretty much laments on the destruction of the first uh, Jewish commonwealth, the first Israelite commonwealth. Um, he's at the, the end of that society, and he's basically crying. He's saying, how could this possibly have happened? And in the first chapter of Isaiah, he says, um, because, uh, right? your, your silver was full of dross. Your silver was impure. It was, uh, it was clipped basically and and some people take this as like like a spiritual like your souls were impure but there's one rabbi uh by the name of uh, uh mayor labush who was commenting in the 19th century he was saying isaiah is talking very literally here he's saying that your coins were clipped and it started how did this happen isaiah says it happened because you started clipping your coins and stealing a little bit a little bit a little bit at a time and then over the centuries over the 400 500 years of the first israelite commonwealth you started thinking that theft was okay, and then you started murdering people eventually, and then the whole society fell apart. It happened drip by drip, and then all of a sudden your society is filled with a bunch of murderers, and then everything was destroyed. That's how it happened. It's the same thing. Same thing now. We can see these messages in the Bible. It's about a civilization that rose to prominence, that grew out of slavery, that rose to prominence, and then committed suicide. And then at the very end, the book came back, and we're the remnants of that. Uh, so that's where I get my strength from. I see... Uh, I see these values everywhere, and I think it's God's value to not steal. It's very simple. Well, this this is exactly the uh, the, the the line that Gary North took. That uh, he he wrote a book called um, Christian Economics in One Lesson, um, based on or, or it's set in homage to Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. And Henry Henry Hazlitt's one lesson was. You, whenever you're considering some economic question, you have to consider everybody, not just the people who obviously benefit, but the people who are um, surreptitiously being stolen from. Um, and you have to consider it in the long term as well as the short term. Um, Gary North's uh, one lesson was, thou shalt not steal. And and he was he went through various things, including taxation and 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 and. Um, money printing and inflationary policies by governments and all the rest of it. And it illustrates how theft is at the heart of all of them and the harm that it does. Um, the, Gary North also decided um, to do an economic commentary on the Bible. And he reckoned uh, nine months ought to do it. And uh, now, OK, he's got part two of the book as well. Uh, so it's been slightly longer, but it took him, I think, 26 years to do this, uh, doing three hours a day. So there is a lot of economic data in there. You're quite right, it's not, a, it's not an economic textbook, far from it. But there's a huge number of things that have economic impact, such as debt forgiveness and the Jubilee and limitations to debt um, 
and uh, having having land and assets returned to the original owners after so long. So there, there are inherent limitations built in there and things that you wouldn't get from Austrian economics, things that seem to come from inspiration from um, non from beyond human understanding, beyond human reasoning. Um, although it was always quite interesting to me that people pick up a long wave in economics that's lasted about 60 years and the, the, um, the jubilee was every 50 years. So maybe there is something in just how long that period of time is that, it's, that, that having a debt forgiveness period every so often would have a fundamental effect on human beings and how they operate and interact with one another that would be um, more conducive to human thriving and less uh, likely to um, generate booms and busts uh, than the system we've got. To swing back to gold and silver, uh, the, the, the key point for me in, in looking at the history of this is when we plot how the various parts of society are doing um, against time. And we found that after the Second World War, everybody was doing quite well. The whole West was advancing. Everyone was getting wealthier. And the poorest in society were getting wealthier slightly faster than the richest. And the gap was closing. And this was true right up until 1971. And then it was suddenly no longer true. And ever since then, the, the, the richest 10% have done much better than everyone else. Uh, the position of the poor has rather flatlined and uh, the wealth discrepancies between riches and poorest have, have, have gone uh, hugely up. And of course, what happened in 1971, the last vestige of the gold standard or exchangeability for gold, the last official tie to gold uh, was cancelled by the Nixon administration uh, temporarily. Uh, it, they said at the time, and that might eventually turn out to be true. So I look at that data point and say, well, yes, the, the, the fundamental change from honest money, or at least a remnant of honest money, to money which is increasingly open to manipulation, speculation, counterfeiting and theft, is only benefiting those who are um, receiving the proceeds of the theft and the problems in society are stacking up the whole time um, and that to correct these problems in society is impossible without correcting back to actual honest money, money with integrity, to quote one of our Muslim friends from the UK column who spoke, uh, a guy called Sheikh Imran Hussein, who spoke extensively on this when we interviewed him. Uh, he viewed this as being a, a major problem worldwide as well. Um, so just to uh, to close things off here, could you could you close off by saying just how you see the benefits of having a, a gold and silver based currency compared to the system which we have, which is based on backing by debt and backing by sometimes now nothing at all. Um, the 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 wider benefits that this this holds for 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 human thriving. Well, look, theft is a zero-sum game. So when we're talking about uh, the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer ever since the last vestiges of the gold standard uh, were put, were extinguished in 1971, uh, then the rich have to get richer off uh, if, you know, if inflation is theft, they're stealing from somebody. They're stealing from the middle and lower classes who are not the capitalists, who have weight, who earn wages and 
that purchasing power gets transferred to the wealthy through various means, through the bank system, through real estate, through investments that they make. So the, right now, the, we're in an antagonistic society that, that contributes to class warfare and, and identity politics and all this other stuff that just it, it, it takes us away from what unites us, which is that we are all creations of the same source. Uh, and uh, we and he, you know, that source gave us the commodities with which to honestly trade with one another, and we can either use them or not. But trade, honest trade, it's a very unifying, it's a very human, it's a very humbling experience when you can know that, you know, you traded this for that, and he got more value, and you got more value, and you both have more value than you did before. It is not a zero-sum game. It is people helping each other. Um, and when business is honest, that creates allies, that creates friends, and it doesn't matter what your politics are because they're irrelevant. When money is political, when money substitutes are political, the only thing that matters is politics. And as money gets more political, then politics gets more and more divisive and more and more consequential. And then voting gets more and more important in people's eyes because they see politics as the only way to save themselves when it's really just destroying themselves. So yes, we want to see honest money because we want to connect with each other on an honest level. And that really puts all our differences aside when we can add value to each other's lives through honest exchange. And we do that through gold and silver and any other commodity that you want to exchange for anything else. It doesn't have to be gold and silver. That's just the most convenient. Rafi, thank you very much for that. Uh, until next time, I'm sure there'll be a next time. Um, I think I'd like to get into some of the, uh, the, the some of the obscure areas of um, central bank breakdown. I think this year we're going to have an awful lot to comment on. So until uh -huh. then, uh, thank you. And would you like just before we go to uh, let our viewers know how they can find your work and uh, uh, your channels and uh, contact you uh, further if they wish? Yeah, well, you can find my main newsletter, The Endgame Investor, on any search engine. Just type in The Endgame Investor. You'll find it. It's part of Seeking Alpha. You can sign up for a two-week free trial at no risk. Um, if you want a more biblical uh, side of things to see how I read uh, the Bible, um, then you can join my Patreon um, at patreon.com slash endgameinvestor. And I put out a video once a week based on the Jewish uh, Torah reading cycle of what we're reading every week, and I find something to comment about. Um, or you can uh, you can subscribe to my YouTube channel, Rafi Farber, R-A-F-I-F-A-R-B-E-R. -E um, or you can follow me on Twitter, uh, at Rafi Farber. Yeah, the Twitter account is a bit of a hoot, so I do recommend that to everybody. Uh, Rafi, thank you very much. Until next time, uh, you take care of yourself and we'll talk soon.